I am amazed that throughout the Scriptures, I'm amazed at how many people are missing out on life with Jesus. Like in the Bible. I'm amazed. In the Gospels, how many people are missing out on life with Jesus. I read the Bible through rose-tinted glasses. I know you can't see it, but they're rose-tinted. I love Jesus, right? So I read the Bibles and I see Him calling the disciples. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Look, they left everything and followed Him. And yes, it was hard. But it works out. Sort of. Yes, it does work out. I love seeing the stories of those who respond to Jesus in faith. And throughout the Gospels, the Gospels are just full of these stories. But you know what? This week I was struck by the fact that I didn't do the math, but it seems like for every one of the stories where there's a response of faith, there's a story of someone who misses out on all of who Jesus is and on life with Him. Even just look at some of the the texts we've looked at this fall in our three-peat series. We've looked at three texts so far. Mark chapter 2 is where we started. Jesus heals the paralyzed man who was dropped through the roof. Remember that one? And we're like, wow, I see that story. I'm like, wow, Jesus is amazing. Love that guy. But you forget that the teachers of the law were there going, who do you think you are? And pretty much through the rest of the Gospels, there's a confrontational relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they miss out on life with Jesus. Or or consider where we were just a few weeks ago in Mark 5. Jesus crosses the lake to get to the Gerasene region and He heals a demon-possessed man. And I'm like, yay, Jesus! This is fantastic! And it closes with that image of the man dressed and in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm like, I love this! But we forget that the townspeople responded differently. Do you remember what they said? Jesus, please leave the region. And even in the text that we've started in this sort of installation of our three-peat, Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes back to His hometown. These are His people. And He's going back to His hometown. But once again, I would love to be able to grab my tinted glasses and go like, yay, this is amazing. Look at how these people respond in faith. But they don't. They don't respond in faith. They're missing out on life with Jesus. This morning, we're going to explore that a little bit. What's going on? So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 6. Again, we're reading it. It's the same text as last week because this is what we do. We just preach the same text again and again. If you've got a Black Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 816. Mark chapter 6, verses 1-6. through We find these words. Jesus left there and went to His hometown, accompanied by His disciples. When the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given Him? What are these remarkable miracles He's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Wait, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. 
he was amazed at their lack of faith. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, again, as we approach your word, hmm, how are we going to pray this week? Lord Jesus, confront us with who you are this week. We give you permission to, to penetrate our defenses, to break through, whether it's apathy or, or purposeful ignorance or distraction or even rebellion. We ask that you would break through our walls to reach our hearts with an invitation to respond to you. Let us see you more clearly. We pray in your name. Amen. The people in Jesus' own hometown. They missed out on life with Jesus. Why is that? What was going on in the text? And here in Mark chapter 2, what is going on here that those people who knew Jesus, arguably, who knew Jesus the best, right? What's going on that they rejected Him? That they missed out on life with Him? And here's what I think is happening. You see, those people, they knew all about Jesus. I'm just not actually sure they knew Jesus Himself. Did you catch the difference between those two statements? They knew all about Jesus. Right, that's the first half. They knew all about Jesus, but did they actually know Jesus Himself? If that's not clear yet, let's jump into the text to, to unpack that a little bit. Last week, we were looking at this text and we saw that the people start out amazed. Right? If you're looking in your Bibles, you can go down to just where the text begins in chapter 6. Right? Jesus left there. He went to His hometown accompanied by His disciples. The Sabbath comes. He begins to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard Him were amazed. They were amazed. That's the initial reaction of the people, right? The fir this first set of questions they ask. Wow, where did this man get these things? Oh, what's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these miracles he's performing? It's this great amazement. Right? He teaches as one with authority. Now, we even looked last week at this word amazing and like, what is this? They keep using this word. We should make sure it means what we think it means. And it means to astound or overwhelm. We saw that. Then we saw that literally it means to like strike out of one's senses. Like to be knocked out by Jesus' teaching. Uh, to cause to wonder at, marvel at, astonish. We saw even to be extraordinarily impressed by something. But there was actually one, one extra little piece up, up in the bottom right-hand corner here that we just kind of touched on last week. To be amazed can be to be extraordinarily impressed it can also be to be extraordinarily disturbed by something. And what happens in our text this morning is we, we go from amazed and extraordinarily impressed to extraordinarily disturbed. You can see it in the text that the dis disturbation, that's not a word, they get disturbed. And there's a transition that happens, right? You get the first questions. Ah, oh, where do you get these things? What's this wisdom and miracles? This is awesome. And then there's a shift, right? It's like, it's like, there. It's, there's a difference between the first three questions and the second three questions. Wait, wait, wait. Isn't this the carpenter? Well, hold on. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas Simon? Aren't it just, do you see the tone shift? 
that happens in this text? Everything begins to change for the people there in Nazareth. They started by being amazed. But the text tells us by the end, they took offense at Him. They started out being amazed. But they ended up offended. So I guess we have to jump right there. I mean, what's so offensive about Jesus? What must He have been doing to offend them so badly? Maybe we should start with what's not so offensive about Jesus. Here's what's not offensive about Jesus. Jesus never demeans anyone. Right? Jesus, no matter who they are or what they do or what their lifestyle is or whether they're just broken sinners or the most highly and righteous holy people, Jesus always treats people with dignity and confers respect upon them. That doesn't mean He doesn't challenge their sin. That doesn't mean He doesn't call them out of a former life and into a new life. That doesn't mean people always respond to Him well, but Jesus always treats people with dignity and respect. So just so we're clear, when we're talking about what's offensive about Jesus, it's not the way He speaks about people. He's not mean. He's not arrogant. He doesn't speak in put-downs. He honors every human being because He knows they're made in the image of God. They're precious to God. And so He treats all people as precious to God. And yet, Jesus is offensive. I almost feel like saying, don't get me started on how offensive Jesus is. I mean, think about it. Jesus' message was offensive. And we don't get a lot of it here in Mark, but we get the rest of the Gospels, so we've got something going on there. But you, if you look at to the Jesus' sort of moral, ethical teaching... He basically takes hundreds of years of interpretation of the Torah and flips it on its head. The Scriptures say Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So we see over and over again, like Jesus' teaching on love and justice was like breaking people, blowing people's minds, right? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth. Jesus says, uh, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And the world's going like, What? That makes No! You've heard of Rome, right? We don't want to pray for Rome. We don't want to pray for our enemies. And Jesus says that's the path to the kingdom. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Give them your cloak as well. Love your enemies. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That... No! Nobody wants to hear that. It's offensive. But it's not just His like, ethical and, and sort of moral teaching. When Mark begins the, his Gospel account of Jesus' teaching, the opening sermon Jesus gives is this. The time has come, said Jesus. This is Mark 1, 14 and 15. The Kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's offensive. Do you see the offense in it? Repent implies there's something to repent of. To say that there's good news implies there's bad news that we're living in. For Jesus to say something like, uh, repent, ask for forgiveness, that implies, wait, 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 are you saying I have something I should be forgiven for? There's, a, there's, a, there's an implication of the good news of the Gospel 
that it actually is the rescue from a bad situation. And I'm pretty sure in their day, just like in ours, the assumption is part of the offense. To say Jesus saves means I'm dying in my sin. And who are you to tell me I'm dying in my sin? The gospel is offensive. So I think that Jesus' message from the beginning has been offensive to those who are self-righteous, to those who think they've got it all together, to those who know the system, to those who are like, I got this. And Jesus says, repent. And they say, who do you think you are? And very, very closely related to that, I think it's not just his message that was offensive, I think his authority. He taught as one with authority. And that's problematic too. Right? It would be so great if he was just a good teacher. Man, that would be so much easier to deal with. But when Jesus teaches, he proclaims his sovereignty over our lives. He did it then, he does it now. He did it as he called disciples, leave everything and follow me. Everybody he interacts with, drop it all. I am now everything to you, come follow me. He did it to rich people, sell everything you have, give it all to the poor and follow me. That's not something to which you say, that is a good teaching. I'll tuck that away for later. That's a call to give everything for Jesus. That's authority. That's Jesus proclaiming His Lordship. And I'm pretty sure that's offensive. And I think it was especially offensive here in Nazareth. I think it was especially offensive because here is a small town boy coming home. Right? Nazareth is not some giant metropolis some religious Mecca. This is where all of the people study and learn and, and become amazing scholars of God. It's like small town America. It's like 50 miles from nowhere. Population of about 500. Which means everybody knows everybody and is all up into everybody's business. And yet, Jesus has gone from there and he started to teach and he started to move around Galilee and they start hearing, hey, Jesus is making a name for himself. He's got some stuff going on. Oh, Jesus is... And now he's coming home. And so everyone gathers saying, hey, the small town boy's starting to make it big. And we hear there's things about miracles and we hear he's rocking the world with his teaching. The small town boy is coming home. They're like, here he is. Here's our guy. Here's our boy coming home. But then Jesus teaches a message that's offensive. Jesus claims an authority that is offensive. And they go from amazement to saying, hold on, who do you think you are? That, that's the tone I see in the text. right? They start out with this question, whoa, whoa, whoa. Isn't this the carpenter? See, they knew him when he was a little boy. They knew him when he played in the streets with the other village kids. They knew him when he was learning carpentry or masonry from his father Joseph, apprenticing in the trade of his father. And there's some evidence, some, some say this text is actually evidence that Joseph died earlier. But it is likely that Jesus adopted his father's trade. He would have been a carpenter or like a general contractor, just like his dad. And they're asking, wait, 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 <laughs> isn't this 
This is the carpenter. We know this is, remember Jesus? But there's a little bit more there too. Because Jesus has, has adopted the posture of an itinerant rabbi. One who is schooled in, in the, the law and able to teach God's people. And he is now a, a, an itinerant teacher. And what are they saying here? This should be the place where they say, wow, this is incredible teaching from this rabbi. But they, instead, they say, isn't this just a carpenter? There's a dig there too. Not that carpentry isn't a noble profession. They're digging that he's not a rabbi. They're saying, who does he think he is? And then they continue, wait, wait, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And I don't think that's like, remember those people? When Jesus came back, you know everybody went to the synagogue to hear the small town boy make good. I think they're there in the room. I could almost hear this being like, Mary, is this your boy? Hey, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, what... What have you let get into this kid's head? Aren't his sisters? Hi, sisters. Yeah. Is he yours? Like, what have you done to allow this to take place? His family still lived there, and they were probably right there in the synagogue. So can you hear the incredulity of the questioning? From amazement to offense. They're saying, who does this guy think he is? You presume little Jesus coming back here telling us about who God is, about what is good and right and pleasing to Him. You're coming home all uppity, pretending like you've got authority. It's one thing to claim you've got authority, Jesus, but we actually know you. Who do you think you are claiming authority over us? Everything about Jesus was offensive, right? What He taught, how He taught, and I think in this text, especially who He taught. Because they thought they knew all about Jesus. They thought they knew all about Jesus. But what we see is they didn't actually know Jesus. They may have known where he was raised. They may have known who his family was, what his profession had been. Maybe even some of the shenanigans he got himself into as a kid. But did they know him? The text continues to say they took offense at him. And it's heartbreaking. Jesus even responds, a prophet is not without honor except right here. Except in his own hometown. Except among his own relatives in his own home. He's chastising them. They thought they knew all about Jesus. I'm not sure they knew Him. And because they stayed in that posture, they missed out on life with Jesus. Nothing has changed since then. I don't think anything has changed since then. I think that this actually sounds like it's happening today. And I look out there in the world around us, and I say, yes, Jesus' message was offensive, but guess what? It's still offensive. For all the same reasons. Right? His message is still offensive, and His authority is like super offensive. He's still making claims that He is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. That's offensive. 
the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus and His authority. Saying to follow Me, your whole life belongs to Me. It's the absolute best thing for you, but it's all of you, not just the parts you feel like yielding. I think His message was still offensive. I think the authority with which Jesus interacts with us is still offensive today. And He still makes those claims. And I would love to be able to set up a straw man of that big bad culture out there, an unbelieving world, and say, well, they know all about Jesus, right? That we're emerging from a a Christian sort of culture to a post-Christian culture. And so uh, they think they know all about Jesus so they can dismiss Jesus. And I would argue they know about Him. They've heard rumors of Him. They've seen misrepresentations of Him. They've seen Ned Flanders. So they know all about Jesus. just don't know Him. They don't know Him personally. They don't know Him relationally. And I would love to sit here and say, so, as we can see, there's a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Look at the world out there. And as much as I would like to do that, that would be really cheap. That would be picking low-hanging fruit. Because that's actually not what this text is talking about. This is his hometown. This is not the big bad world out there. This is not an unbelieving world out there. These are his people. These are his family. These are the Jesus people. This is a text all about what's in here. This is a text about the church. This is a text that challenges the church to saying we know about Him. But do we know Him? I mean, we know about Him. We read the Bible. We know what the Bible says. We read His teachings. Great. So you know about Him. You go to a Bible study. Awesome. So did the Nazareth townsfolk. But have you fully embraced a life that knows Him? See, I think there is a dramatic misunderstanding of Jesus and of Christianity, of the 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 choice to follow Jesus. And this dramatic misunderstanding has been allowed to exist for the last few generations. And what it leads to is a watered-down, neutered version of Christianity. A powerless version of following Jesus. Especially within the church. What do I mean? I'm going to use some different language instead of the knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Let me, let me phrase it this way. Over the last few generations, and maybe even longer, maybe this is just a chronic thing you know, since Jesus came. But it feels like those who begin to follow Jesus, there are sort of two divergent paths that emerge as we try to follow Him. And I will call them thus. There is a saved from kind of faith. And there is a saved for kind of faith. You see which part, what was different between those things? There's a saved from kind of faith and a saved for kind of faith. Let's start with saved from faith. This is a faith that is focused on what we are saved from, which is good. It's focused on conversion. It's focused on sin and forgiveness. But it can, left unchecked, become kind of a one-time transaction. Right? I prayed the sinner's prayer, so now I'm good. A a generation of evangelists 
have built their ministries on getting people to that place of praying the sinner's prayer, confessing their sins, accepting Jesus' forgiveness, being saved from eternal separation from God. It's, but left unchecked, it becomes more of a fire insurance faith than a living faith. It's that I've purchased my insurance plan, so I can set that over here on the shelf. I can live my life however I want, and then when I die... I don't go to hell because I've got fire insurance. I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was 12. And I get to go be with Jesus forever. And I, in some ways, that is the heart, the root issue of what emerged as cultural Christianity. A Christianity in name only. And it's a divorcing of the Christian faith from the Christ of that faith. That, that's what I mean when I say it allows for a depowered Christianity. We know about Jesus. We go to church. We're grateful for what He's done. We take communion. We celebrate His act on the cross for 2,000 years ago. We, we focus on the cross the way our sins have been covered and we have been set free from the law of sin and death. And these are good, great, amazing things. So please don't mishear me. I'm not hacking on any of that. Those are all good things. They are just dramatically incomplete. These things look only to what we already know about Jesus. It, it's like we don't even expect Jesus to show up and change our lives today. At best, it's a Christian faith that has lived missing out on the opportunity of life with Jesus. At worst, it creates a church that is filled with hypocrisy. A church of people living their own lives however they want, claiming what Jesus has done for them. And then when Jesus does show up, people are actually inoculated against Him. You know, like uh, they've been exposed to a weakened, sort of powerless version of Jesus. And so they already think they know Him. So when someone says, well, do you have a relationship? Oh yes, I know Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. He's so great. When they still haven't actually given Him lordship over their lives. We know a lot of information about Jesus to which we can bring intellectual assent. But man, there's so much more. I think saved from kind of faith is truly amazing. It is just incomplete. I think what we're looking at, there's so much more available to us. An ongoing, daily relationship with Jesus. Look, sin is super real. Yes, and amen. And, and forgiveness by grace through faith Absolutely, yes and amen. But there is a reason God chose to save us. Jesus didn't come just to save us from sin and death. He came to save us for something. This is what I mean when I'm talking about a saved for kind of faith. It is not one that only looks backwards to what Jesus has done. It's one that says, what am I saved for? What does my daily experience of life look like now? And it's to be in relationship with God. You know, through the whole Bible, God hammers this over and over again with this whole, I will be with you. I will be your God. You'll be my people. Right? Garden of Eden. Like taking a walk with God in the cool of the day. That's what life with God is supposed to look like. And then the tabernacle, the temple. It's God's intention to be in the midst of His people. They do life together. Jesus comes and we get to see the clearest picture of God that we've got. What was His name? Emmanuel. God with 
us, the church, you and I, are living stones being built into a dwelling place where God's Spirit dwells. God is among His people. And the end game we see in Revelation, when the new creation comes and the old passes away and the new comes, God will be with us. He will be our God. We will be His people. He'll be right there wiping every tear from our eyes. That's not just what we're saved from. That's what we're saved for. right? It's, consider a fish that has flopped out of the ocean and it's on the shore. And now it's flopping around. It's like, I'm dying. And so a kid comes along and is like, oh, fish, going to die. Boop. And it kicks it back into the ocean. Now that, that, that kid has saved that fish from certain death. And the kids are like, off you go, little fishy. Swim away, little fishy. That fish has been saved from death. But there's no ongoing relationship between the boy and the fish. And chances are, especially here in Gloucester, that fish is just going to get hooked by somebody else. Or you consider like a death row inmate being pardoned by the governor. And then the governor himself comes to the prison, escorts the convict out, and then just outside the prison gate says, here's 50 bucks and a bus ticket. Off you go. Good luck. Like, there's no actual expectation there of this ongoing close relationship between the governor and the prisoner. We're not even sure they share the same politics. He might not even vote for that governor. I guess my question is, is this how we end up viewing our relationship with Jesus? Okay, I, I recognize this, is, this could sound harsh, right? I'm, I'm being a little bit mean right now. But if we're dead in our sins because we've rebelled against God and Jesus Himself comes down, takes our sin upon Himself, dies on the cross for it, He doesn't rise again, brush us off, give us 50 bucks and a bus ticket. He says, now, now we do life together. You're not just saved from, you're saved for. He's not saying, now you need, you've got it. I've saved you. So we pull back into a posture saying, I'm saved and that's good enough for me. Now leave me alone, Jesus. Sure, I might go to church and I'll celebrate the cross. I'll give 10%. I'll tithe. I'll even help out at the church work day. I'm even open to learning more about you, Jesus. But as for my life, like my life and my trajectory, my decisions, those are mine. As for my apathy, or, or my anger, or my wounds, or my greed, or my lust. Hands off, Jesus. Just who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Continuing to demand involvement in my life. It's not enough to be Jesus' hometown crowd. They missed out on what life with Jesus is really like. The reason Jesus saves is so that we might actually know God and enjoy Him forever. I was going to skip this, but now I'm not. John 14 is one of the most amazing places where we see this. It's all here. Right? That John 14, everyone knows John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And everyone gets all hot and bothered. What do you mean? Jesus is making an exclusive claim. We don't like that He's the only way. That's totally not cool in this society that celebrates religious pluralism. 
Are you telling me that I can't get to heaven without Jesus? Are you telling me I can't get to paradise without Jesus? Are you telling me that I don't get into heaven if I don't accept Jesus? And the answer is we're not actually saying that at all. Because what's promised here is not heaven or paradise. What's promised is the Father. This is a relationship. What Jesus is saying is you can't get to the God who created you and loves you and created the world and loves the world. The God who has saved you. The God who has redeemed you. This is not about some abstracted paradise where we get to continue living however we want. Like, who switched the cheese? It's, it's saying the whole objective of life has changed. We're not after paradise. We're after God Himself. And that's actually what defines paradise. The relationship language through John 14 is crazy, right? Jesus continues later in that same chapter. Anyone who loves Me, here's the beginning of the relationship. And then He actually calls them to obey Me. That's great. And if that relationship exists, if you love me and you obey what I teach, what I command, you see what it says? My Father will love them and we will come and make our home with them. That's not a little fish shot back in the ocean. That's not 50 bucks and a bus ticket. That's being reunited with our Father from whom we have been estranged. And then there's this beautiful part at the end here. All this I have spoken while still with you. Verse 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. We get this beautiful picture of Jesus saying, look, and I am going away. And when I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come and live with you in an ongoing basis. And He's going to teach you all things and He's going to continue to remind you of everything. You get to do life with God because of the Holy Spirit. This is amazing! When Jesus saves, He saves for one goal. To have a relationship with you. And I'm afraid that in my own life, and maybe in yours, that we fall into the trap of thinking that we know about Him and that that's good enough. That we have sufficient biblical knowledge to have a correct theology. Or to be able to celebrate what He has done as long as He doesn't mess with my life today. As long as I can keep living however I want to live. And I'm not making claims about who's saved and who's not. That's not the point and I don't care. What I'm saying is, when you only look back to what you're saved from, you're missing out on everything you've been saved for. And that's what breaks my heart. Do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? Do you enjoy spending time with Him? Are you in the Word not because you're checking off your daily Bible reading plan? But because you're listening for His voice, you're expectant that when you open the Scriptures, you read, and then you maybe even pause and have some time of silence to say, Lord, do you have anything you want to say to me about my life? There's an element of, of embracing some of the spiritual disciplines like solitude or silence in a world that is so loud and noisy and distracting to stop and get away and to say, Lord, search me and know me. Know my inmost thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me 
to life everlasting. I am convinced that a save from faith is good. But a save for faith is so much better. The people in Nazareth, they started out amazed. Right? Oh, look at miracles, wisdom, awesome. They ended up offended. Who do you think you are? And the heartbreaking reality that we come to over and over again in the Gospels, it's right there for us to see it. Is that people actually do miss out on life with Jesus. When we say that we are teaching through the Gospel of Mark and the series is called Come to Jesus, it's not just come to Him once, pray the sinner's prayer. It is come to Him again and again and again. It is to submit your life to Him again and again and again. To enjoy His presence again and again and again until it just becomes the matrix in which life is lived. It's, it's the air we breathe. And I don't want us as a church to be satisfied with a faith that is good. I don't want us to be satisfied with good enough faith. I want us to embrace the best faith possible, life with Jesus. I don't want us to have the same response as the people in Nazareth who knew Jesus the best and missed out on life with Him. Will you pray with me? Almighty and all-powerful God, we worship You because You are a Creator and You are the sustainer of all life. Apart from You, we don't even get our next breath. Yet with all of Your power, thank You that You also are near and imminent and interested in us and involved in our lives. Thank You for what Jesus did and Lord Jesus, forgive me if I was too strong in saying that's only looking backwards. I, we love the cross and we're grateful for it and we love the Savior who died on the cross for us. We delight that we have been set free from our sin. We delight that the penalty of our sin has been removed from us. We love and are so grateful that You have taken us from death into life. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Never let us take that for granted. But one of the ways we do take it for granted is by keeping it just there in the past instead of living into it as a daily experience of Your love and grace. Father, some of us have got this. Awesome. Some of us really need this. Some of us have been flirting with this boundary between going all in with You or just sort of having the trappings of You of moving from a saved from faith into a saved for faith. Instead of knowing about Jesus, actually embracing the relationship with You that You offer, knowing You. And then we wonder why our faith seems powerless. We ask, where are You, Lord? And the answer is, You're right here just waiting for us to step into a daily, moment-by-moment -moment experience of life with You. 
Jesus, may this not be heard as a reprimand. May it be heard as an invitation. May it not be seen as a criticism, but may it be seen as a a wake-up call. Awaken me. Awaken me to the greatness of Your majesty. Awaken me to all that You are. Not just what You have done, but what You are going to continue to do as we experience and delight in life with You. Break through to us. Call us higher up and deeper in that we might enjoy You forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.